Last week, we spent some time here on Graceful Truth taking a look at a couple of the statements that Christ uttered from the cross. Seven of them all together. We'll take a look at the rest of them here today. Join us. Famous last words. I think all of us tend to understand when somebody knows they're dying, knows they're leaving, uh, we tend to take note of the last things they say. Well, here in the Gospel of John, we have seven specific statements that Christ utters from the cross. And they're statements that we focused on last week and again this week as we conclude our look at the seven last words of Christ from the cross. Please join us from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. It's time now for Graceful Truth. Our teacher and pastor once again, here's Pastor Steve Converse. The fourth statement, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabatini. At noon, you've got to remember, darkness fell suddenly over the earth. This was a supernatural event, beloved. Can you imagine if all of a sudden it was dark outside? Wouldn't you be a little concerned? You'd be wondering, what's going on? Piercing through that darkness was the fourth statement of Christ as he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In other words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, there's no writer alive that would have had his heroes say words like this. They kind of surprise us. It's hard to fathom in some mysterious way, a way that we can't even fully comprehend as human beings. During those awful hours on the cross, the Father was pouring out the full measure of his wrath against sin. Because on Christ was imputed the guilt of our sin. And he was suffering the punishment for the sins of us on our behalf. Yet he was perfect and never sinned. He was the recipient of that wrath of God. And it was his own son. It's hard to comprehend. God was punishing Jesus as if he had committed personally every wicked deed and every sin that every person will ever commit who will ever put their faith and trust in him. And in doing so, he could forgive and treat those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. Think about it. Jesus accomplished in six hours, beloved, what would have taken us the rest of eternity to never accomplish the forgiveness of our sins. Scripture clearly teaches Jesus did bear the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, beloved, we are healed. Spiritually. Spiritually. We are healed. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Alfred Edersheim, a biblical scholar, said this, He disarmed death by burying its shaft in his own heart. And thereby death had no more arrows. I mean, you would think when something of that major consequence was happening, when that was happening at the cross, you'd think people would just stand there in awe. But as we read read the crucifixion account, we realize that the mockery continued. It continued to the very end. Even as he was bearing the sins of the world and crying out, 
Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabatani. They had no interest at all. People were laughing. People were mocking. They were gambling. They were acting as if nothing important were taking place at all. When, in fact, the most significant event in human history was unfolding right before their eyes. Fifth statement. You find the next words Jesus gave at the cross in John 19, 28 to 30. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said this, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop, and they put it in his next to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The fifth statement that Jesus made from the cross, I thirst, was the first from the lips of our Lord dealing with his own personal needs. Took to number five before he got to his personal needs. Scientists tell us when you die of thirst, it's one of the most agonizing deaths that there is. Because basically, all of the cells of your body are just screaming for liquid, and you have none. And the pain gets worse, and the body cramps up, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And this was a thirst that was produced by a tremendous loss of blood that Christ had gone through, through his persecution and his execution. It was a thirst produced by a man who had literally borne the sins of the world. It was a thirst where no, no other man had ever known before. Can you imagine the creator of the universe, creator of everything we see around us? God Almighty saying, I thirst. The very one who created water was crying out for just a little water to quench this insatiable thirst that he had. It reminds us of the other, the, the humanity of Christ. I mean, we know at Christmas we sing about and we teach about that God became man. He came down to earth. The Almighty God became a simple little fetus. He was born and he received nourishment from his mother. One writer calls him deity in diapers. I like that. God became a man. But let's not forget that while he was indeed a man, he was not a sinful man like you and I. He was a man with no sin at all, the Bible says. Yet he voluntarily chose to experience the limitations of this human body. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8 sums it up this way. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That phrase, he humbled himself, you could translate that, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? His deity? No. He was still God. Remember we sing the Christmas carol, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. He humbled himself, he emptied himself, but he didn't do away with his deity. You might say he didn't allow himself to enjoy the privileges of it. He did not void his deity, but he veiled it, the Bible says. And he walked around with people like you and I, and he experienced what men and women, as, as we as humans, experience every day. The Bible says as a young man he increased in wisdom and stature. We read of Jesus being tired and sleepy and hungry and sorrowful and even angry on one occasion. These are all human experiences. But with Jesus, none of these experiences ever was sinful in any way, shape, or form. Think about this. Is your body racked with pain? 
So was his. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been misjudged or maybe misrepresented? So was he. Have you ever had those who are nearest and dearest to you turn away? So did he. We have to understand that he has been in a place like us so many times. He knows what it's like. We have a God, beloved, that can relate to us. He's not some God off in some solar place far away and doesn't have anything to do with us. No, he's a personal God and he wants to know you personally. He's been here. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says, Therefore it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and his sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that could take away the sins of the people since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation. He is able to help us when we are being tempted. Can't help but read that. Think of when we read that, I thirst. Think of John 4, when that woman at the well, and Jesus, the other time he uttered those same words, I thirst. And that woman was fascinated with the dialogue that she had with the Savior. And he said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well. He was not saying that if you drink this water, you will want more in the future, literally. He was also speaking of it in a spiritual, symbolic sense. See, this woman was trying to find satisfaction in human relationships. Matter of fact, she'd been married and divorced several times over. And at that time, she was living with the man she wasn't even married to. And so Jesus proclaimed her, whoever drinks of this water will not thirst again. In other words, no man is ever going to meet the deepest needs in your life, lady. That's what he was telling her. There's no human relationship that will satisfy your inner longings because you were created to know God. And until you know God, you're still going to have that need unmet. And you can write that over the well of any of your life. You can write it over your well of your career, of your possessions, your experiences. If you drink of this water, you will thirst again. You're always going to want more. That's how the world is. Jesus says here, I thirst. Jesus was saying to that woman in John 4 when he asked for that drink of water. And here, once again, he's saying... It on the cross. See, here's what it comes down to, beloved. Because Jesus thirsted, we don't have to. Because he died on the cross, we don't have to. He made it possible. He made a way for us to know God. No longer do we have to go on thirsting after empty things of this world. We can satisfy our thirst in a relationship with him. Jesus didn't want the painkiller that he was offered, the gall on the, on the, on the cross. Because he was bearing the weight of our sin. And he wanted to do it fully. If you've ever been under, under anesthesia, after the anesthesia wears off, can you imagine the pain that you're in after the operation? Can you imagine going through a crucifixion with no anesthesia? <laughs> it's amazing. Turned away the sedative because he wanted to bear the sin of the world. Well, having done that, he cried out his wor- his, the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he said, I thirst. Statement number six, it's finished. It is finished. I mean, this is kind of like the battle cry of the cross. That's what it is. You know, throughout history, certain countries and certain people, they have battle cries. Remember at Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, what was their battle cry? Torah, 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 right? When you think of people down in Texas... Okay, their battle cry is what? Remember the Alamo. 
Even when you go over to Israel, when we were over in Israel and they took us up to Masada, we saw a bunch of Israeli soldiers up there. I said, what are they doing up here? They go, they bring them up here. Because it was on Masada where a thousand Jews gave up their life defending themselves against the Roman occupation. And they train those Israeli soldiers and they take them up there and they say, you know what, remember this, don't forget this. That's their battle cry. Well, the battle cry at the cross was this. The greatest and far most reaching battle cry ever told throughout history. The Son of God, as he's hung there on that cross, on the Roman cross over 2,000 years ago, cried out, it is finished. I don't know about you, but I get excited. You know, when when you're working at a task and it's kind of maybe difficult or whatever, and you get to the end and you can say, whoa, I'm done. Isn't that a good feeling? Can you imagine bearing the weight of sin that Christ bore on the cross Those who stood close, Mary, John, the Roman soldiers, and others, were not the only ones who heard these words. I believe it echoed throughout heaven. And I also believe that it echoed throughout the hallways of hell as well. And I think for the first time, Satan realized in his blind rage and jealousy, when he filled the heart of Judas Iscariot, caused him to betray Christ. You know what? He he unwittingly really played into the purpose and plan of the Father. God used him like a little pawn on a chess chessboard. Because the Bible says the Father was the one who determined long ago that God would come to this earth in the form of a man and would die on a cross. Suddenly, perhaps at that moment, it dawned on the devil that he had just helped fulfill prophetic scripture. He helped bring about the purposes of God. God works in mysterious ways. What was meant to destroy Jesus was now the ultimate destroyer of the devil himself. You know, in Genesis, it says, there is one coming who will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Battle lines were drawn from the very beginning. Satan knew there was one coming who would crush him. That's why he tried throughout history to stop it, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament. You see Satan constantly fighting against the coming Messiah. Well, it says it was finished. That means it's done, it was paid, it's performed, it's accomplished. What was paid? What was paid? The price of our redemption was paid, beloved. What was performed? The righteous requirements of the law. That's what was performed. And what was accomplished? All that the Father had given Jesus to do. He could finally say at the end of his life, you know what, I am done. The storm is over, it's finally passed. The devil had done all that he could to fight against it. But now, it's over. The darkness has ended. It's finished. That's a victory cry. What was finished? Finished were the horrendous sufferings of Christ. No human being has ever gone under the sufferings that Christ had gone under as he went to the cross. Never again would he experience pain. Never again would he bear the sins of the world. Never again would he even for a moment be forsaken by God. Ever, ever, ever again. Finished were all the demands of the Mosaic law. Finished were all those standards laid out in scripture that we're unable to keep. I mean, it cracks me up. Some people talk today about the religion. You know, we go to church. No, no, no. I just keep the commandments. Oh, you keep the commandments. What, what commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments. Oh, you keep them? Oh, yeah. Really? I mean, that just fascinates me. Because the whole purpose of the the law being given was not to keep it. It was given so that we could see that we can't keep it. I mean, if God would give us a bunch of rules and regulations and we just did that and that's how we were saved, well, then why would Jesus have to go to the cross? 
The whole reason he gave us the law, Romans tells us, is because of our own sinful nature, we can't save ourselves. God gave us the law so that we could see our inability to keep it. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken anything? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever taken the, the Lord's name in vain? Well, guess what? You just broke the law, pal. And the Bible says if you break it in one area, you broke the whole thing. You're guilty of the whole law. That's what James 2.10 says. Stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. So don't go around saying, well, I just keep the Ten Commandments. That's silly. I mean, aren't you glad that Christ said it's finished? Aren't you glad that he, at the end of his life, at the end of his, his sacrifice, said it's done? He opened the, the door to our prison cells, beloved. So many people don't want to get up and walk out of the cell. The door's open. Remember in Acts 12 when Peter was in prison and the believers prayed for him and the angel of the Lord was sent to deliver him and the, the door of the prison was opened? Well, what does the Bible say? It says that Peter had to get up and walk out the door. See, so many people in the world today don't believe that the door is open, that Christ paid for the sins of the world. Unfortunately, some people don't want to be freed from the vice that's strangling them or some people don't want to change. Some people don't want to get out of the darkness and into the light. Let me tell you this morning on the authority of Scripture that if you want out of whatever is holding you back, whatever is burdening you down, if you want out or under from under it, whatever it is, the door is open because Jesus Christ has paid the price. There's nothing more that can be done for you. He's already made available to you the power and the resources to be victorious over the power of sin. You're not going to be sinless. Nobody's sinless. But you can definitely, as a Christian, sin less. Your life can be transformed because of what he finished on the cross. Finished was our salvation. All of our sins were transferred to Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And his righteousness was transferred to us. What an incredible transaction. That's why Isaiah 53, 6 said, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's nothing that you can do to add to or take away from the work that Christ has accomplished. It's been paid. Just like the hymn writer wrote, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. There's no more debts left. It's all paid. And he's done that for you. He's done that for me. Thank God for that sixth statement. It is finished. The last one quickly. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus then gives his seventh and his final statement from the cross. He says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke 23, 46. Earlier on, Jesus said that no man takes my life. Remember that? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and I also have the power to take it up again. John 10, 18. The Roman soldiers who came to break Jesus' legs were amazed that he had already died. Like I said, Crucifixion was not a, a quick death. And that practice of breaking the legs was intended to prevent the one on the cross from pushing themselves up so they could still breathe. And after they broke their legs, usually the, 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 the criminal would just die almost immediately, within a matter of moments. But when they came to Christ, it wasn't necessary to break his bones, which fulfilled another scripture, by the way, did not one of his bones be broken. I mean, many significant events took place on the day that Jesus died. Three of the Gospels tell us that the veil in the temple was torn in two. The veil in the temple was some 36 inches thick. It was tightly woven. It was basically a, a woven wall of material to separate the Holy of Holies from the other sections of the temple. And it says that it was torn, not from bottom to top, beloved, but from top to bottom. A miracle. 
you imagine all the worshipers in the temple that moment? Oh, what's going on? Suddenly that huge veil began to tear from the top to the bottom. It wasn't a person doing it, it was God. God was saying, there's no more wall keeping you to access me. The barrier is removed because Christ finished what he did. He paid the price. In effect, God was saying that through the death of his son, we can have total access into his presence. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I don't know about you, but that makes me just jump for joy. I don't have to go to a priest anymore. I don't have to go to a pastor. I don't have to go to the church building. No, I have access directly to God 24-7 because of what Christ did. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which we consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, we have a high priest in the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. See, following the crucifixion of Christ, we have access to God. Direct access. It's amazing when you stop and think about it. The Lord finished his work. He committed his spirit to his Father. I can't help to think some 32 years ago when I first came to Christ, some of the people that I got to know as a Christian, and they were, I guess, Christians. I thought they were Christians. And try to look them up today, some of these people, and they're not walking with the Lord anymore. Matter of fact, they don't even do it. Matter of fact, some of them are just living total sinful lives. And I think about that, and I think, you know, sometimes when we think about heaven, When we finally get to heaven, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven. But I think there's going to be three that are going to be very clear to us. First of all, I think there's going to be a lot of people that we thought would be there that are not. I think we're going to be surprised. Secondly, I think there's going to be a lot of people we never thought would be there (laughs) that are. And I think the third thing, we're going to look around and go, wow, (laughs) we're here by his grace. So you can have a great beginning and a horrible ending. Just because you start well doesn't mean that you are going to finish well. But God wants you to have both a great beginning and a wonderful ending. There's people in the Bible that started out with a feeble beginning and ended gloriously. But one day, beloved, you're going to take your last breath. You're going to eat your last meal. You're going to speak your final words. And the Apostle Paul recognizes this. Knowing his life was coming to a close, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but all to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul was saying that he finished the race that he had begun. I asked today, will you be able to say that? If not, you can change now. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and having sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep running that race. Look to Jesus. Consider what he went through for you. Those principles that are listed there in your outline. Do you realize that you're in need of the Father's forgiveness? Have you realized, confessed, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? The truth that Jesus is concerned for us and he provides for us. The fact that Jesus was forsaken so we don't have to be. 
Even his statement, I thirst, it's a personal statement. It reminds us that Jesus is not only God, but he's man. That he can identify with our needs. That he paid for our sins. And beloved, sin's control over us is broken. He wants you to entrust your life into his hands. Because he can be trusted to care for your soul. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.